Welcome to the desert of the real. What is real? How do you define real? Do you believe in fate? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. What are you trying to tell me? That I should dodge bullets? No. Trying to tell you that when you're ready, you won't have to. There is no spoon. Because you have been down there, you know that way. You know exactly where it is. You know what that means? It's Latin. It means no. I tell. As you adequately put, the problem is choice. Causality. Action. Reaction. Cause. Infant. Everything begins with choice. No. Wrong. Choice is an illusion created between those with power and those with them. This is a Sci-Fi Rewind with Kevin Batchelder, Miles P. McLaughlin, and Scott Herzog. Welcome back to the Sci-Fi Rewind. This is Episode 9. I'm one of your hosts here tonight, Scott Herzog, from the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, and with me is... Hello, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And he's also from the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, and with us coming all the way from tuning into Sci-Fi TV Podcast land... Kevin Batchelder over here, folks. Welcome, welcome. Yep, and so uh, it's great to be back. It's great to be talking. Um, We've kind of been building up to this... Final episode of the Matrix trilogy, although we made like four different movies out of it, or I guess if you hmm. consider the Animatrix like one unit. Uh, but it's been a long, it feels like oh, we started this forever ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. it's uh, actually way back to what, May or so? I mean, four movies, four months. Yeah. So I've been doing these episodes about once a month. So it's fun and a lot of good feedback coming back from you, the listeners that are chiming in on your thoughts and this this trilogy has resonated with people some people like it some people don't some people have their favorite parts and we're going to hear from some of you tonight toward the end of the episode after we kind of tear it down and give you our thoughts about this episode uh i call it episode but movie is probably more accurate <laughs> so but <clears throat> so uh how's everyone been um Pretty good. It's a little hot here in merry old Lancaster County. It is indeed. We're up over 100, 102 today, 103. Oh, gosh. So. We have air conditioning now in this room. Can you imagine if I didn't have air conditioning yet? <laughs> this would be the shortest podcast on record. <laughs> be like, okay, it was good. Bye. See ya. <laughs> Gotta go. Bye. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's always bad when you start off a podcast talking about the weather, though. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, these guys are going nowhere fast. Tune out. <laughs> 
Yeah. I'm just kidding. But, well, we're so glad you're joining us. And tonight, we actually were dialoguing, where do we go after the Matrix? So like, we thought that before we kind of get into dialoguing about Matrix Revolutions, this last movie uh, of the Matrix, we're going to start, we're going to kind of lay out the groundwork as to where we're headed. And, um, and so, for August... This is we're going to blame Miles for this, but for August we have a movie that we've kind of come up with for August, and then we're going to let you vote on a bank of six movies, two that each of us kind of pulled out, and maybe uh, why we liked, why we think, why we want to rewatch them, and uh, and we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later on. But Miles, go ahead, tell us the movie that we're doing for August. We are going to watch and review uh, Stargate. Uh, uh, with uh, Kurt Russell and uh, David Spader, yeah, James Spader, James Spader, yeah, James Spader. But yeah, um, and uh, and why do you want to rewatch uh, Stargate? I've been on an SG one kick for the last couple months, and now I want to go back even further and watch the the, the, the movie that started it all. The movie that started it all, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, you know, I watched this, but it's been a little bit. And uh, Kevin, you've watched this movie, right? Yes, it's been a little while, but yep, well, it's definitely one of the classics. It is. It's kind. Of, I mean, it, it certainly there's a lot to talk about because it spawns such a huge franchise mm-hmm. that's come out of it. So it's kind of we're kind of going back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. The, the, or, it's kind of the origin story of that. So it'll be kind of neat. So those of you that are joining us in this whole rewatch journey, we invite you to you know you know pick up a copy, download. I don't. Netflix does not have it streaming, so you'll have to probably rent it, uh, but. Uh, you know, rent Stargate, the original Stargate, and uh, let us know your thoughts on it. And we're going to be doing that August, probably about the middle of August. We want to try and have your thoughts and comments in probably about the second or third week. We didn't really decide on a date, did we, Kevin? But yeah, no, by middle of the month for feedback is usually what we try to stick with for the yeah. sake of everybody having a regular calendar. Yeah, so August 15th, right there. Have it in August 15th. And if not, if you get it in and we do record it prior to that, we'll just put the feedback on the next show. It's not a real big deal. So, um, and, and then so. Uh, Kevin, do you want to talk a little bit about what we are doing for the upcoming month, like September and October? Yeah, what we figured we'd do is, is open it up to uh, you folks, uh, the listeners, to see which title you might want to see us do next. So uh, the three of us each came up with two kind of titles from some of the what might be considered the top sci-fi movies of all time. I think uh, most of them we'll, are on that list. Yeah, we found a couple of those lists, you know, top 50 sci-fi movies of all time or top 100, and kind of scanned it and picked out a couple that... Uh, yeah. Kevin, Kevin what are reasons. yours? What are your two? The, the two I threw in the list, some classics from the 80s. Uh, number one was The Terminator, and number two is uh, Aliens. Oh, yeah. Hmm. So, and, uh, they certainly are classics. Mm-hmm. So, Miles, yes. how about you? What did you uh, put in your list? Um, I put Blade Runner. I want to see that movie again. Uh, it's been – I saw it about maybe 15 or so years ago, but uh, now I want to see it with a, you know, maybe a – not say wiser, but at least an older set of eyes now, right. and, uh, and and try to appreciate Edward James Olmos uh, in it more. Mm-hmm. And your other one? And my other one is uh, Enemy Mine, uh, starring Louis Gossett Jr. and Which I've never seen. And uh, Dennis Quaid. Oh, good, mm-hmm. good. And and my two are Twelve Monkeys with Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. uh, and Equilibrium with one of um, uh, who's who's Batman? I've, Christian Bale. Thank, thank, one of Christian Bale's first movies. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first ones, mm-hmm. and uh, and actually probably plays more to the Matrix vein. It's kind of a Matrix ripoff a yeah. little bit. Yeah, it is. But mm-hmm. but I I remember enjoying it, and there's some neat ideas and themes in it. So I kind of wanted to go back and rewatch it, especially after watching the Matrix again. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe want to go back and 
kind of see this again for what it is. So, so those are the six choices, and I'll throw them up on a poll when we post this episode, so you'll be able to vote. And voting will be available till probably about August fifteenth. You know, about the middle of next month, and then we'll announce the winner. Or you'll probably be able to see who the winner is by that time, and uh, let us know which ones you want to rewatch. So, and as always, if there's ever a movie that you want to rewatch and we don't talk about it, just let us know. We'll, we'll put it into the the big uh, bingo machine that we roll around and pick right. out names from every so often. So, but but tonight we are talking revolutions. So uh, let's get the ball rolling. Why don't we start off with just uh, some initial thoughts uh, about this movie? And I thought maybe before we actually even get into that, we talked last time about how well reloaded did Mm -hmm. at the box office i thought maybe we'll start there we said reloaded did uh probably was the best of all the matrix movies you know earning about 940 it's 942 million dollars domestic international uh and then the matrix you know i mean compared to the matrix which everyone loved you know brought in 46 Mm. 4600 Excuse me, four hundred and sixty-three million dollars domestic and international, and uh, then we have, but then you have revolutions, which brought in four hundred and twenty-seven million. So the lowest of the Matrix movies, yeah, which is kind of interesting. Um, and I wondered if that, in your opinion, was a testament to Reloaded or a testament to Revolutions itself. What are your thoughts on that? I would pro. I think Reloaded didn't get the critical acclaim, and so I probably turned away some viewers. Would be my my guess. Uh, Kevin, what do you think? Uh, I think it's a combination of the two you mentioned. I think we had you know the Matrix came out of nowhere. You know, it was kind of cool, caught a lot of people by surprise, so they were very interested with the sequel. A lot of people came out to see it, like you said, based on the dollars. But since it wasn't the same home run that the matrix was you lost some folks who didn't really care about the third and then because the third didn't do that well with critics and such i think that's just another part of why it just kind of you know still uh, no one's knocking 400 million dollars here but <laughs> oh, right <laughs> but it wasn't the the incredible almost a billion dollars like the second one was i mean there are, i mean let's be honest there are a lot of movie makers out there that would love to have a, a 400 million dollar you know, these are still good paycheck. numbers. Yeah. I mean, it was, these are still good numbers, but when you look at them comparatively, mm-hmm. they don't look as good, right? As, mm-hmm. You know, the original. So, so I thought I'd throw that out there just so we have just to give because I know we did that the last time. Why don't we start with our initial thoughts as to what it was like to go back and rewatch this movie, Kevin? Can I put you in the spot and have you go first? Sure. Sure. I mean, I still, as, as I've been all along, I'm a big fan of the entire trilogy. I know a lot of folks like to bash the second and third movie, and they certainly, I don't think, are as good as the first. But I see it as one complete story. So I, my impression, uh, the great thing for me, as I've mentioned, too, was that I was doing this rewatch the first time on Blu-ray, and it still, you know, it so pops on the screen. It's beautiful to, to just see it all play out. So, I mean, visually, it just washed over me beautifully. The, the story itself, it's more of a chance, for me anyway, of seeing the completion. While it may not have, for me, as many ooh and ah moments, maybe as uh, as Reloaded did, you know, some of the fight scenes and the, the whole traffic scene and such, I still was very interested in seeing the, the completion of the journey, you know, Neo's journey and the Neo Trinity and, and what that all means and the whole ending and 
you know, making my brain hurt trying to think about it all. So um, my impression was I still enjoyed it, but I do understand that it's not as good as certainly the first movie. So uh, I look at it from a different perspective. I don't try to judge it as, uh, you know, on the same par with that one. Right. Well, you know, and it's certainly not a, you know, the Matrix really was a standalone film that you could watch on its own entity. And when you watched Reloaded, you were left with a kind of an unfinished story, and this did complete that story, in a mm-hmm. sense. I mean, because we're left hanging on, you know, will science survive or not? And, you know, that whole, and the whole battle with, you know, Neo kind of being in limbo at the end of the second movie. And you get all that stuff resolved now. Um, and and this is very much of an, uh, this, this movie was much more of an action ride than... Uh, I, maybe not the first movie, but especially the second movie wasn't quite as action-centered or driven, even though it had its moments, as this one was. I would agree with that. I, I think there, there's a, maybe less ideas... Expl- uh, uh, let me backtrack. Let me say there's less new, uh, newer ideas explored in the third film. I think the, the ideas that were explored in the second one as far as philosophy, religion, those sort of things, uh, they're brought up again... In the third one, and I think the third, the third one is a good, you know, it, it, it wraps things up as far as uh, it, it completes the second one, right? So, uh, right. but but I, I now also agree that the action scenes we see are even you know even bigger with with uh, you know the battle for Zion and uh, um, the uh, the hammer. I think the ship is called. The hammer trying to make it back to Zion. That, that whole action sequence was really intense, and uh, the, the final uh, uh, conflict between uh, Neo and Agent Smith. Well, since you're kind of talking about this, Miles, what, what were some of our? Uh, let's talk about some of our favorite scenes or moments in this in this uh, in Revolutions itself. Some of the things that really stood out to us. Um, I'm going to first pick pick a non-action scene. It's sort of the opening where Neo wakes up and there's this family waiting for the train. Are you from the Matrix? Yes. No. I mean, I was. Why did you leave? I had to. I had to leave my home, too. Tati, come here, darling. Leave the poor man in peace. Yes, Papa. I am sorry, she is still very curious. I know you. Yes, in the restaurant of the Frenchman. I am Ramakandra. This is my wife, Kamala, my daughter, Sati. We are most honored to meet you. Your programs? Oh, yes. I am the power plant systems manager for recycling operations. My wife is an interactive software programmer. She is highly creative. What are you doing here? You do not belong here. Kamala... Goodness, I apologize. My wife can be very direct. It's okay. I don't have an answer. I don't even know where here is. This place is nowhere. It is between your world and our world. Who's the train man? He works for the Frenchman. Why, I know you were going to say that. The Frenchman does not forget, and he does not forgive. You know him? I know only what I need to know. I know that if you want to take something from our world into your world that does not belong there, you must go to the Frenchman. Is that what you're doing here? Rama, please. I do not want to be cruel, Kamala. He may never see another face for the rest of his life. I'm sorry. You don't have to answer that question. 
No, I, I don't mind. The answer is simple. I love my daughter very much. I find her to be the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But where we are from, that is not enough. Every program that is created must have a purpose. If it does not, it is deleted. I went to the Frenchman to save my daughter. You do not understand. I just have never heard a program speak of love. It is a human emotion. No, it is a word. What matters is the connection the word implies. I see that you are in love. Can you tell me what you would give to hold on to that connection? Anything. Then perhaps the reason you are here is not so different than the reason I am here. Uh, what I, I thought was really interesting is now the programs in the Matrix are acting very human. Now they've, uh, um, you know, they, they, they take on human personifications, but they, 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 they act, they are, you know, in a sense becoming human. I mean, they, uh, they, they can fall in love. They can have children, you know, in, in, in their own uh, in, in their own way, in their own sense. But it's just uh, how, how things in the matrix are getting out of control. But just the, how, how, how now the machines or, or the programs are, you know, becoming human. And, and there's – I'm just thought of it now with the train. It's almost like the Underground Railroad, you know, trying, you know, uh, trying to, you know, help – you know, slaves escape. I mean, this this child, her existence would have been voided because her child, according to them, doesn't serve. According to the machines, doesn't serve a purpose. They would just delete her. And so, these two programs obviously love their child, and you know, they're making deals with another program in the Matrix to do that. And so, I thought that was an interesting idea explored. Well, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. Kevin, how about for you? Did you have a, a scene that really sticks out? Well, yeah, there, I mean, there are a couple. It, it's, uh, as Miles said, it's kind of, you get a lot of the cool action scenes, like the entire uh, battle with the, the Sentinels breaking in and all those cool machines and the, the machine gun fire and all that, as well as the, that amazing ride that, uh, you know, Niobe takes her ship on trying to get in there. That's kind of edge of the seat stuff. But uh, more for me, like the entire trilogy, is the thought of what it all means, you know, the entire... Not so much the Smith uh, uh, showdown with Neo as what it means. And uh, the the actions at the end with the Oracle and the Architect and the whole concept of uh, the little girl as the new Neo, so to speak, is just, uh, I still just find it very, very cool to reflect on the meaning of all that. Well, now, ain't this a surprise? You played a very dangerous game. Change always is. Just how long do you think this peace is going to last? As long as it can. (laughs) What about the others? What others? The ones that want out. Obviously, they will be freed. I have your word. What do you think I am? Human? Art! 
we were afraid we might not find you. Everything's okay now. Look, look! Just look at that. Beautiful. Did you do that? For now. That's nice. I know he'd love it. Will we ever see him again? I suspect so. Someday. Did you always know? Oh, no. No, I didn't. But I believe. Absolutely. I think also the, um, you know, you're kind of mentioning, in fact, before we actually called you, we were re-listening to the whole speech between the Oracle there and the Architect and then Seraph and then even um, uh, Seraph and, uh, and Saki at the end. It's just an incredible dialogue because everything, every single line has so much meaning kind of packed behind it. I, the other, the other scenes that we're talking about speeches here a little bit that really stood out is, and this is another one we watched, is a whole where Agent Smith just badgering, you know, Neo, why do you fight? Why do you do this? Um, and his final line is just so haunting, you know, not his, but Neo's response is because I choose to. Why, Mister Anderson? Why? Why? Why do you do it? Why? Why get up? Why keep fighting? You believe you're fighting for something or more than your survival? Can you tell me what it is? Do you even know? Is it freedom or truth? Perhaps peace? Could it be for love? Illusions, Mr. Anderson. Vagaries of perception. Temporary constructs of a feeble human intellect trying desperately to justify an existence that is without meaning or purpose. And all of them as artificial as the Matrix itself. Although only a human mind could invent something as insipid as love. You must be able to see it, Mr. Anderson. You must know it by now. You can't win. It's pointless to keep fighting. Why, Mr. Anderson? Why? Why do you persist? Because I choose to. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, you know, it comes back to choice. Well, even even Smith's speech about it's very existential. I mean, as far as uh, you know, this in the end. I mean, according to Smith, and, and you know, this all really in, in the end means nothing. Uh, all all these things we just give meaning to it just so for our own comfort or whatever and so even you know even Smith's last speech asked those questions uh, you know about the meaning of life I guess you know or, or does life have any meaning at the end um, but the girl if I remember correctly did the oracle asked the little girl about the sunset says did you do that she said yeah. So it's like you know, okay, what's up with this little girl? I mean, uh, yeah. okay, her, her program obviously has you know 
It's not just a purposeless program. It could do things. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, don't they kind of hint that, that she kind of resets the Matrix? Is that kind of the hint there at the end when they see the Matrix reset and she wakes up? I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into that a little bit. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, but that's the beauty of this trilogy is, yes, you get you, the collective you, gets to read in almost any meaning we want, be it <laughs> spiritual, religion, or, or individualism, uh, to what that all means. Because the, the thing that I come back to that's, that's fascinating for me is Smith has now become so powerful and so rogue where he's literally taking over everything. So it gets to be the situation which, which leads to Neo going to the machine world city uh, to say, hey, you know, you guys can't control him. I can't, or, uh, but I can try to stop him. This whole idea that we each, um, I think the word Miles used, you know, create our own... Um, comfort zone, our own definitions of what our world is, the, the reason for being, and that there's always something, in this case Smith, that is going to uh, infiltrate or take it down or make us question it. Uh, and that Neo's, I always take Neo's final statement as being, he does it because he chooses to, meaning no matter what happens anywhere, everything is simply choice to it. Right, right. Um. And what an incredible! I mean, when he's speaking to the machine, there, um, it's just—it's just incredible. That 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 scene itself is also a pretty incredible scene, and it kind of mirrors. I kind of view that face that pops up as kind of being the voice of the architect in the machine world. I mean, in our world, I guess in the Zion world, I guess so to say. I mean, I don't know if that's correct or not, but I kind of because I, I guess I kind of view the architect as kind of ruling the Matrix world that. You know, this is then the ruler of the real world, right? I don't know if that's right or not. I think they're listed as separate characters, but it feels the same to me. What I took out of the uh, the, the machine world of the what Neo interacts with, the, there was a lot of anger in the, in the machine. Oh, yeah. So it's like the the the, the uh, wounds still, you know, burn deep for what humanity did to the machines. So it's. Uh, um, that's what I took from that. But you do see that in the architect because he has his cynicism at the end. How long do you think this piece will last? Right. You know, and kind of acknowledging, you know, you know, what do you think we are, human? Right. <laughs> a, that whole line. Mm-hmm. Well, but that's also cool because see, I, I see them as two different ways. A little earlier on, when Neo goes to see the Oracle, uh, and he's talking about the architect, and she tells Neo that the architect can only see, um, basically, he can't see the big picture. He only sees, um, you know, those two choices. They, they, you know, basically restarting the matrix in his definition of how it's going to be each time. You know, this, however many Neos they've been, we just keep, you know, it's a reset button. We're going to do it all over again, kids. And so I see them uh, as each being what's really the big. Uh, uh, yin and yang, the the and I don't I don't want to say good and evil, but the two of them are the ones that are playing this giant chess game, and there are just neos and the little girl. There's always someone who's going to have some special power within that, but it's still going to end up being the two of them playing the same game over and over. Hmm. So what you're saying, Scott, as far as the machine world and that face being the architect, you can draw that parallel. That's how the architect goes into that part of the world. Much like at the end when Neo is killed, he turns into the oracle. That's the body we see. 
So, I mean, is he, she just using his persona to affect change within it? I mean, uh, uh, my head's going to start to hurt if I keep going. So, well, mm-hmm. well, let me let me ask you this. You mentioned that he turns into the oracle. Are you talking about like when they kind of pull his body out and it's glowing there at the end? No, I'm talking about when they're when they're fighting and they end up in the big hole and Smith is beating the crap out of them. And then after, after so Smith's body is, and then Oracle. Smith is eventually, you know, blown to bits. Right. Who do we see in the rain in the hole? The, the Oracle. Yeah, I remember. No, the Oracle. It is the Oracle. You're yeah. right. Yes, you're right. So I mean, then I take and draw some parallels and think: is is the is Neo just the Oracle's you know henchman to for want of a better term, right. you know, to affect right. the change. The same way that the architect was that face in the machine world is really just the architect going in there to play the game with Neo. You know, they're both using him to get to a point. You know, they both maybe lost control of this world with the machines and the the humans fighting. So they do need that big reset. And it's the Oracle because it's the architect who tells the Oracle you really took a big risk here, which I think is, in my mind, I read to mean that rather than being outside of everything and just offering advice she actually chose to go in this time because smith had become so powerful mm-hmm. she had to put herself to a certain degree within neo to affect the final chance to shut down smith well you know i do want to say that the machine does cheat a little you know in this whole battle between agent smith and neo because neo like literally is kind of dead and he kind of jolts neo back into life kind of like you know which tries to show, yeah. yeah, kind of like a you know what, what do you call those paddles? You know, great, you know, just shocks him back into existence. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, so technically, I mean, Agent Smith did win this battle. Well, if you parallel it with the f- first movie, this is going to be a, this is going to be a weird, but just go with it. Uh, in the first one, it, it, you know, it appears that Agent Smith kills Neo, but Trinity comes to him and says, you know, I believe in you, or what I love you, kisses and, him and brings back to life. Yeah, and then. You have the machines sort, you know, it's not telling you that it, it, it loves Neo, but it's like it needs Neo, though. And so it's going to do what it can to help Neo so Neo can you know, deal with Smith. See, we're going we're gonna to get into a big discussion about love and need here, Miles, based on, you know, that whole... You're right. <laughs> so my head will start hurting here. Well, even, <laughs> even I mean, if you see the way, I, I assume Neo dies at the end. It's uh, yourself, yeah. I, I, but the way the machines deal with his body, it's it, it seems very you know being being gentle with his body. Seems yeah, there's something caring or endearing. It, there's, they're either doing something you know showing you dignity or doing and respect um, of how of, of how they're going to you know dispose of his body, but they're not. But it's not. They don't just fire a laser beam at it and burn it. It's like they—they they, they are, gent- like you said, gently carrying it away, and uh, um, so it's just interesting, you know, the, the juxtaposition. Now the, the machine does need Neo because 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 Agent Smith has just pretty much run him up and taken over. Yeah. What do you think of that, and, Kevin? Well, again, I think it's part of that balance and kind of goes into my discussion about how this whole thing is really the the oracle against the architect. So that since it's the two of them, they're kind of using different components of this story for the sake of their um, battle, chess match, whatever it might be, or learning experience. I mean, and, and also how does 
how does Neo's ability once once uh, you know the Smith person inside is has blinded him? How does he see all those things? Right. What 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 is it that gives him that ability or that power? Is is this still his ability to control the Matrix in a different way now? I mean, you know, well, and is and, the whole, and is the outside world the Matrix as we discussed in one of our last podcasts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's his ability to see that and and guide Trinity and stop all those sentinels or most of them you know as they got closer to the city and everything you know that line is blurring on which is which right right when you see it even at the end when they when they do drag off his body he's glowing much like seraph did when we first met seraph the first time Mm -hmm. isn't his body glowing they kind of don't don't they kind of fall back and they kind of show his body being drug out and he's on this kind of And, and i go ahead and i think that's part of what a lot of people didn't like about this movie is they saw way too many um religion aspects you know this whole idea of savior of uh, giving himself up of you know infinite light and all that so i, I know that's what took a lot of people out of enjoying it for the aspect of a movie they, they were seeing too many well, things there too many very obvious things or parallels whereas in the first movie a lot of that is still there it's much more subtle uh, it isn't directly uh, brought up as much and by this third one that there's very much the whole idea of christ and uh, many other religions in terms that that you want to fill in here so that that turned a lot of people off i think to it because then they thought they were being kind of preached to oh really i i I don't know if i would have taken it quite quite an angle i mean after all they kill the trinity uh you know yes no and i know but i'm just uh, and i'm not agreeing with it i'm just saying a lot of people did as my recollection no and i I hear you're saying and i can see this whole idea of of light and you know and um he does, in a sense, die for the people. To, he, die, he dies to save Zion, and there's something certainly noble, heroic, and perhaps quasi-religious in that. Well, does he also? I mean, Smith is the wild card here too. So, could we? Does he die for the machines also? Because he does. I mean, because 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 the machines don't. I mean, Smith has gone rogue, and he's got his own agenda, and it's not the same as the machines' agenda. So, I mean. Uh, so he dies for humanity. He dies for machines. What was also interesting, and you, you know, the religious symbolism when uh, when, when Neo is blinded, he, he sees uh, Bane, but he sees him as Smith. But like he's almost like looking at Smith is on fire. He's almost like demonic looking, and so yeah, so you've seen Smith, just, or what, who, you know what he really is or something. Yeah, it's like he's almost looking into his soul. And right. that's where you get some other, you know, religious aspects of it or spiritual. I mean, it's a this line is very fuzzy, and I'm not being <laughs> negative on any of it. I find it very fascinating, and I think it, you know, it's a good thing. It makes people question or, or ask or want to learn more. And, and I know, uh, unfortunately, I didn't take the time I had hoped to, but didn't get around to it to go back to a couple of those books I had mentioned way back in our first Matrix discussion because I know, for example, several of the scenes in this movie, and specifically the train station one, have a lot of parallels to like Hinduism and other religions in terms of what these characters mean. Even the the scene in the bondage club again with the the Merovigian and and uh, uh, and all that stuff again, the whole idea of, of getting past that to 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 forward the story, you know. Um, there's a ton of stuff there if you want to dig into it and, and look at it. So, I have told you before, there is no escaping the nature of the universe. It is that nature that has again brought you to me. 
Where some see coincidence, I see consequence. Where others see chance, I see cost. Bring me the eyes of the oracle. And I will give you back your savior. It seems a perfectly fair and reasonable deal to me. Yes? No? I don't have time for this shit. <laughs> You want to make a deal? How about this? You give me Neo, or we all die right here, right now. Interesting deal. You are really ready to die for this man. I'll leave it. She'll do it. If she has to, she'll kill every one of us. She's in love. It is remarkable how similar the pattern of love is to the pattern of insanity. Time's up. What's it going to be, Merv? It, it, it's like a lot of other things in life, and it's going to sound corny, but it really, I think, applies certainly in this trilogy, is you can see what you want to see, because it is there. Hmm. And there's a lot of it, and there's certainly a lot of truth. Because, I mean, I, I remember when these movies first came out, like, you know... You hear people talking about, oh, look at the spiritual themes. But then, but then when you take a closer look, it doesn't quite hold up 100%. And mm-hmm. then you, you look at it from, you know, like Plato's Allegory of the Cave. And, well, it's that, that works to a degree. And, I mean, I think the bottom line is when you when you go into some of the, um, the background or when you look at, like, the roots of the Matrix or some of those video clips, if you get behind-the-scene footage, they, they drew from all sorts of areas. Uh, all sorts of philosophies and a ton of different religions to kind of put, I mean, to put to intentionally put some of this philosophy in there. Yes, which is exactly why a lot of people see what they want to see because whatever your background might be, there's going to be something in there that you go, oh, that's such and such from my religion. Right. That's what it all, and that's what it all means. <laughs> you know, which is, then, go ahead. No, I was going to say that's when we all tend, tend to put blinders on it, and we're only seeing it in the in the context yeah. of what we know. You know, and, re- which, and really, which is brilliant from their standpoint, because I mean, the Wachowski brothers then has a movie that people are connecting to, and that is earning you know four hundred million dollars at the box office minimum mm-hmm. for you know at the short end, uh, you know, at the large end, you know, seven hundred million. You know, people are buying into this idea because they identify in part with what's going on, maybe not wholly, but they see themselves, their religion, their faith, their belief, their philosophy in this movie. And it helps connect them. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, wrap all that up with some, you know, cool CGI and a bunch of characters in leather and a lot of guns. And, you know, <laughs> you, got, you, got, you got your uh, recipe for a blockbuster. You got two hours of great entertainment. <laughs> you yeah. definitely do. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the club scene. Gotta be kidding. Holy shit, it's windless. I get it. You must be ready to die. I need to speak with him. Anyway, you're getting through this door. It's over, 
my big dead ass. So be it. There are no weapons allowed in the club. At the bottom of this elevator, there is a code checker. And if we are lucky, one man will check him weapons. And if we're unlucky, there will be many men. Can I take your... Oh, my God. Club scene, I, I loved that club scene um, for many reasons. I think it's the, their entrance into the club scene hmm. is just beautifully done. They, them having them, you know, walk in the ceilings and kind of shoot that. I was watching the behind-the-scene footage of them shooting it. It's just amazing about what they had to do to make that work. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that from, from that to the whole when they're walking when they're kind of in the club, kind of in a triangular formation and kind of circling yeah. around. Uh, with guns out as they're walking in the club, that's just beautifully done. I love, I love that scene. Um, it's just great. It's one of my. I mean, that that part. I watch that scene just to see them circle into the club because I just. Yeah. I, I love that part of it. I like. Well, I like you know the Merovingian. You know, he's, trying, he's getting all philosophical about you know causality and all his. Yeah, yeah. And then Trini, <laughs> yeah. Trini goes, "Okay, I'm tired of this crap." You know, <laughs> yeah. she just pulls out a gun, points it at his head. And, uh, you know, you give us what we want or we all die. You know, yeah. let's just keep it simple. Uh, go, Kevin, did you have something to say? No, I mean, exactly what Miles was saying. I mean, you have two totally different approaches. He wants to talk it all out and tell them why they did it and, you know, cause, effect, causality, his whole thing. And then, like you said, Trinity just like, okay, enough of this crap. Let's, you know, cut to the chase. Yeah. Um, his quote is one of his quotes there is, it's, it's remarkable how similar the pattern of love is to the pattern of insanity. Yeah. <laughs> so just, 
So, yep, and that's exactly right. Yeah, so that was that was probably that, that whole club scene just really stood out. And the uh, and you mentioned earlier Nobi's flight to the docks when she's flying the hammer, just incredible. See, not only her flying, mm-hmm. but them trying to get that door open. It's just oh like yeah, you're, you're on the edge of your seat, saying, "Are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? Are they going to do it?" Mm-hmm. You, of course, know they're going to do it because it's a movie, right? But you mm-hmm. kind of forget that in the moment. But. Yep. No, it was. It was just you know. Again, that's eye candy to the max as far as watching a big uh, confrontation play out and all the cool aspects and you know the fact that one person, one small volunteer soldier, makes all the difference in the world. You know that we all want to kind of put ourselves in that position of, of feeling like we could make that difference ourselves. Yeah, and, and it's a guy that it's a kid. It's the, the kid, kid yeah. from the kid yeah. from the Animatrix. Mm-hmm. Is the guy that kind of saves Zion, mm-hmm. or at least in part. They win yep. that little battle. They're not sure about the war yet, but I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It gives them hope, and they set the EMP off, and phew. we got to see yep. other people, you know, um, smaller characters make make a difference in this. I mean, in the whole battle scene, um, Z, um, Link's wife, um, we get to see her in action with that one with that with that one rocket launcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she does some cool stuff in there too. Yeah, I just like the fact that Zoe's in it. Yes, it's, it's, brief, it's all be a brief, but yes, it's, it is. It is, but Zoe's in it. Zoe's oh. in it, yeah. So that's like when she was a flash forward. It's like, oh look, there's Zoe. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, and I think that's part of why I think some people too had some uh, problems where you know because we got some of those other smaller characters and some of the little bits playing all that up. It, it lost some of the momentum, like at the first movie had, where we really focused on Neo and Trinity for the majority of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this time we ended up with some of those other players spending a lot more screen time. So it kind of, you know, and I could see, not that I agree, but I could see it. it the momentum kind of we stopped to learn a little more about them and see how they're playing into the battle and hear about the commander co- telling the council over and over, yeah, we're all going to die. And <laughs> like, yeah, we know that. We can kind of tell. I mean, you know, so it, it, it was, I thought it was necessary, but it wasn't quite the same. Um, juggernaut that the first one was in terms of I thought as far as just constantly having things happen left and right. Mm. Yeah. Go ahead. So, um, back to some of the symbolism again. What symbol, I mean, did we draw from Neo going blind in that attack? I mean... Uh, well, for me, there's a couple things. One is he was you know on his mission. He had a mission. He knew what he wanted to accomplish. And Going blind, again, one of those steps where that's the thing or that's something that might stop most people. But if you truly believe in something, you will find a way. Um, I kind of saw that as the idea of of just believing in himself uh, and showing that he could transcend the fact that he didn't have vision, you know, know, uh, traditional vision. He could use something else. I think it also showed that it wasn't just... Neo's journey now, it became Trinity's as well. Uh, the idea that you, you know, on any great quest, it, you can't do it alone. Whereas, you know, he had thought he'd go off and do this on his own, and Trinity basically came because she loved him, but turned out to be, without her, it, he wouldn't have succeeded. Right, right, right. And he kind of acknowledges that there. Mm-hmm. One part. You know, I think going blind also, for me, it forced Neo to really see the world around him. You know, we talked about, and again, this is if you buy into the world of Zion being no different than the machine world. 
you know, that the, ma- the Matrix is just an extension of the machine world, just like Zion's an extension of it. Um, like, so they exit out of the Matrix, and they're still in a Matrix-esque, you know, a computer-generated world. Uh, it just kind of reinforces it, because when he goes blind, that's all he sees. Mm-hmm. He sees this, the same type of stuff he sees when he looks at the code of the Matrix, mm-hmm. right? So it kind of forces him to, you know, it kind of forces him to see that. So Right. Right, and and I thought too it was very interesting going back to when Neo went to see the Oracle um, and talking to her about uh, um, you know why she didn't tell him everything basically, um, and, and really it comes down to um, the fact that he told her in some other incarnation not to tell him because he wasn't ready to know it yet. That whole idea of we, we all claim that we'd love to be, you know, go back in time with, you know, what we know now kind of thing. But there are there are times in our lives that you, you find out something or you learn something when it's time to learn it. That doesn't right. always mean it's it's when the time you think you want to learn it. It's when you that's the time that, that you're ready for it. You're able to embrace it. So by that point he'd become powerful enough but also mentally uh, capable to understand what it all meant with the architect and you know choosing between Trinity and saving everyone. Oh, that's just another little cog in this whole wheel. That isn't the end that I thought it was. There's a much bigger right. uh, story at play here, you know. And, and you, you will learn it when you are ready, and that's the only time you're going to. It, it, well, and in a sense, when you go back to the the very first Oracle meeting, you know, know thyself. You know, what's written in Latin above the door. Is, is is Neo's journey throughout all three movies. It's not just the first movie where he realizes, okay, he's the one, but there's a place where he kind of loses faith and yet still chooses to do what he does. That he's that whole time he's beginning to know himself, know himself, know himself, knowing his role, his place in this in this world throughout. And uh, and so even when he thinks he has learned something, there's another level to learn of the thing that he's thought he's learned. Yes, and, and many of us, and many of us who are who are parents, understand that as we watch things happen with our children, you know, we get to see them growing up, getting to a point where they think they know everything, and we realize <laughs> you don't know anything. But then you also, <laughs> you also, uh, when you're growing up yourself, you get to an age where you finally realize, oh, I really don't know everything. So it, that self discovery part. I mean, he kind of goes through the first movie just learning what it is by the second with his love of trinity and and having made the choice to save her instead of everyone he's shifted his focus to her so it's more selfish to a certain degree but by now he's realized that yes i do love her and would do anything for her but i have to do what is right so it's more of that stage of many of us go through in life where you know we're we're out for ourselves because that's all we know then we have you know boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, children, different focus, and then eventually we realize there's something much bigger and that this all happens again. I will eventually die, and that won't really have affected anyone unless I impart that through my actions and what I do. Right, right. Yeah. Boy, we've gotten very deep here. <laughs> that's all right. That's, that's right. And, you know, because this is, again, what the Matrix does. I think one of the reasons that, you know, people – kind of tune into the matrix time and time again because it kind of revitalizes that in them you know a little bit so now correct me if i'm wrong the uh oracle uh different actress who was in the the last two movies 
Well, in the second part of in the, in Revolutions, it was mm-hmm. right. We see yes. the second one. Mm-hmm. The, the original. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. I was going to say, I believe the original actress uh, passed away. They mm-hmm. had to. Yeah. Use a different one. Mm-hmm. Which for which for this type of movie was incredibly lucky for them in the sense that it's a Matrix movie. You can easily pass off the fact it's a different person, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and she did capture the mannerisms, I thought, fairly well. She had a different style, but it very much worked. It was still the same methodical, you know, slow re- measured response type of thing. It's still yes, it it different personality, but I thought still very consistent. Yeah. No, we talk about um, um, you know getting this woman getting the other woman's uh, mannerisms down. What do we think of um, Bane when he becomes uh, agents? You know, personification of uh, Smith. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, I could I could close my eyes and hear Smith just in his cadence mm-hmm. and his phrases. I mean, not visually, maybe maybe he had some of the mannerisms there. But I thought the voice uh, there were there were a couple of times when I closed my eyes and said that is Smith. You could just hear it in the way he accentuated certain words and the way he punctuated uh, like ends of sentences and such. I thought that actor really had a had, had a. I have no idea how hard he had to work at it, but he really uh, had the you know Hugo weaving all that character down pretty good. Yeah, I agree. I thought he did a very good job of uh, channeling uh, Hugo Weaving um, when he was when he was when he was Smith. I think there are, there were moments where I thought that it was Hugo Weaving playing it. Back before I did any real research, I was like, "Boy, he's boy." They really made him look different. Like I actually, <laughs> that, that was my assumption, you know, because um, they they just made him look. He's, he has a slightly different look, but the builds there. I mean, the face looks somewhat similar, and uh, you know. But I mean, obviously, it's not. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I'd now, but, but while we're on that vein, isn't it just isn't that the Smith character just one of the greatest villains in cinema? I mean, the whole idea of how Hugo Weaving brought him to life is just really, to me, amazing. I mean, you can I can hear that voice and I can hear that in my head, oh, even yeah. when I'm watching those movies. The way he's, you know, even going way back to the Matrix when he had. Um, Morpheus in the chair and was explaining the whole virus oh, discussion and human phenomenal. beings. It's just, it is. I, you can just still hear it over and over again, or at least I can. It, it, it's a pa- again, you know, you talked about the Oracle's way of pausing and meditatively thinking. Smith had his own way of pausing and uh, speaking that was very deliberate, methodical, and very enunciated that just stood out. It was mesmerizing, is what I call it. I, mean, I, I loved it. Every time he opened his mouth, I knew it was just going to. It just really jazzed me to hear him go down on those discussions. And, and his little confrontation, which was way too short, between him and the Oracle when he came in the room with all the other Smiths. Um, you know, the whole bit, you know, you knew I would probably do this, and if you knew I did that, and you know, and, uh, you know, just how frustrated he was by the whole idea that someone would know more than him. Uh, yeah, you saw his armor crack a little. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Definitely. <laughs> you know, we, we were talking about some of the parallels as in this movie. Uh, you know, the, the whole cats, the double cats that we see again, the double black cats, and and we see Agent Smith blowing up the same way he blows up in the first movie at the end of the first movie. Um, and then the Oracle telling Niobe that she told that Niobe mentions, I think, to Morpheus that the Oracle told her only what she needed to hear. Mm-hmm. It's kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah, they they re- they really were doing a trying to do a job of linking this back to the first movie, I think, and I think you know those those hints worked for me. 
Well, even more fascinating to me is the fact that, and this is where I started thinking about this a lot, was, again, if I, if I think of this as the whole Oracle versus the architect chess match, is if she is, has power over the, well, she doesn't really have power. What she has is massive influence. Because think about this. If, if they're able to set this up and they want to move all these chess pieces in the right directions, by her saying all these things to these characters, She's setting up so when the opportunity presents itself, this kind of comes back to the Merovingian again, causality and choice and so forth, is think about um, Niobe and what the oracle told her was there would be an opportunity, there would be a time when Neo would ask for your help. So when he needed the ship and the rest of the captains were looking at him like he's nuts to give up a ship, who's going to be the one who's going to give it up? It's going to be her. Right. And if she doesn't give it up, it, then there's no way for him to go to the machine city. So it's like the Oracle is 20 steps ahead in all of these different pieces. So when she tells Neo or Morpheus or Niobe or any of these people, you know, you, you'll hear what you need to know, so to speak. She's making sure, hmm, I'm going to need her to do this and him to do that. So what I do is I tell them this and they just think it's all in their own head. So <laughs> is, it re- is it really choice or is it her guiding them down a certain path? Well, I think, isn't this what your best spiritual leaders really do? They guide you. They don't tell you. I mean, is, I mean, when you, when you, I mean, our, our philosophers or whatever, they, they don't say this is what you need to believe. They kind of guide you into that truth, which is, I think, is what the oracle does. But see, this is where it's fascinating from a spiritual point of view, too, because, and you can draw these parallels to religion, too. I'm fine with that. But from a spiritual point of view, I'm speaking very big here so you guys can disagree with me, but... No one wants to be told what to do. We all want to believe that we're doing what we want to do. Therefore, we're much happier doing it and more likely to succeed if we think we chose to do it. I think that goes along with the first movie about Morpheus asking Neo about fate, you know, about having control of our death. We don't like the idea of um, our destiny being controlled. Or oh, whatever. yeah, absolutely. We don't, you know, we, 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 we want it, we want to believe we make our own fate, so yeah. to speak. So, and so she, her the way she guides is brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant in that. Mm-hmm. I guess the way, but that, it is. It, go ahead. It, it, no, I was going to say it is very much like you were saying, though, Scott. When it comes to whether it's uh, traditional religion or, or spiritual leaders, they're telling us. Hopefully, we're, we're of a mindset that we're open to listen, and when they when they do a good job of quote influencing people. What they're really doing, like you said, is hitting that point in the brain that makes you think about something and realize that you have complete control over one thing, and that one thing is your own thoughts. And if you think about something and decide to do it, there's very little things you can't do when you believe in yourself and whatever cause it is that you're working for. So it's that belief system. Again, it all comes back to all of this again. If you believe in it, you can make it happen. And that's not crap. That's not sales. That's not religion. It's, it's the self-actualization of believing that you have control over your own life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, well, let's uh, bring it a little less deep. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no, believe me. This I, I is, get going this is, sometimes. This is, this is awesome stuff. I mean, I mean, when you talk about if this is what a movie does, it makes you think this is Sure, we go to movies to get entertained. We, we and this movie certainly had the entertainment value. There was certainly, if you wanted action, this movie had no shortage of action. But 
when you get a movie that works on another level that makes you sit back or has you talking at coffee shops after the movie or restaurants, going out to eat, or friends next day at the water cooler, this is what this movie did. And and did so well so that university professors incorporated these movies into the curriculums to discuss their ideas. You have a movie that is much more than just, oh, let's spend you know, 10, 15 bucks to go out and see a movie. Right. And, and Kevin, you have books on discussing the philosophy and ideas of the Matrix. Yeah, I mean, they're fa- for me, they're very fascinating stuff. Those, you know, a splinter yeah. in your mind and taking the red pill, all those different little snippets. It, I find that stuff fascinating. That's why I think I gravitate towards science fiction and fantasy is because usually the best of it is when it engages your brain and gets you going in a hundred directions. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I, I don't yeah. mind a good... I don't mind a good Transformers movie every now and then, but let's face it, that, like you said, it, you spend your money and you've forgotten about it by the time you get out of the car at home. You know, you want to have something, or at least I do, that years later still has me questioning and trying to understand more of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, just some other thoughts, you know, uh, of it. Uh, let's say, any other scenes or characters that kind of stood out to you? Before we kind of move into some, uh, I have some trivia and then we have some listener feedback and maybe anything else you want to talk about here before we move into that? I, I thought, I mean, we'll just make this a little more simple. Um, the battle scene where the Sentinels are invading Cyan, that's just an incredible battle scene uh, between the, those, those mechs with the machine gun arms fighting them. I, I, I there's one scene where they seem, you know, they're shooting at a bunch of them and there's a lot of Sentinels coming out, but then it's like, then twice as much more sentinels come out of that hole. Oh, it's like know. you know, it's just like oh, it's an oh crap moment. It's just like you know, they're they're having a hard time as it is, but then it just gets you know a hundred times worse. Where you know a lot more sentinels just pour, and it, and that's what it looks like is they're they're pouring in there like it's like water or something. Just right. Um, right. That that had me riveted. Just uh, that whole battle scene. Yeah. Anything else for you, Kevin? No, I think you know we really. <laughs> covered it pretty down good. Yeah. You know, I'm just amazed. You're mentioning the Sentinel scene. Mm-hmm. I, I I actually went back and I don't didn't do this for I don't think Reloaded, but for this movie I went back and watched all the featurettes. Um, and I'm just amazed at how much work goes into putting together a movie like The Matrix. You know, we go, we watch it, we critique it and tear it apart, or whatever we do, uh, we praise it. You know, all you know, sitting here over a podcast, but thousands of man hours and intricate layouts and oh it's just amazing the amount of work that goes into making a movie like the matrix it it is it's something it's it's really quite a thing to step back and appreciate i gotta say yeah well i'm thinking what didn't gary lockwood um talk about a critic that um talked about how easy it was to make movies and then she went and actually made one and then she said she can never criticize a movie again and i think (laughs) i think there's some truth to that like there's, we really don't know what it's like to make a movie unless we were actually go try it to do a major blockbuster like this mm-hmm. and put it out. You know, um, I did think th- these are just a few fun facts. This isn't trivia, but did you know that the creator at the intersection where Neo's doubt, Neo and Smith are fighting there at the very end of the mud puddle is the same intersection at the end of the first movie when he's in the phone booth? I didn't know that. Yeah, same, no, didn't know that. Yeah, same same intersection of the end of the first movie. Um, do you know how deep Zion is? 
the, the city of Zion itself. Mm, no, no, not off the top of my head. Se- no. Seven thousand feet. And the only way I heard that is one of the one of the guys that was working the movie said, "Oh, here's how deep it is. It's never said in the movie. Mm-hmm. So, or how deep they said it said it's supposed to be." Mm-hmm. But, um, the council set when uh, Locke and Niobe and all that are sitting before the council is the same. Um, oh, the chairs are from the Merovingians restaurant. Oh, <laughs> so, and I would never pick that up either. I did have a thought that Zion seemed a bit steampunk to me, doesn't it? Yes. That, I mean, the machines and the way they function <laughs> are very have that steampunk not not maybe traditional steampunk like you see when you go to the cons and stuff mm-hmm. but but has a little bit has that gritty steampunk feel a little bit but but um and I also didn't think about this about Zion being like the power pods in reverse you know when you go outside into the makes world the pods you know the batteries the people mm-hmm. are on the outside and in Zion they're on the inside right lining up with their houses so I thought it was kind of cool yeah, true. Mm-hmm. But oh, and also, I didn't I didn't realize this because I didn't pay attention to it. But when I was watching the the making of the the sets for the interiors of the ships, it's all the same set. They just move the chairs around and the equipment and all that. I assumed as much just yeah. to save money. Oh, it makes sense, yeah. but mm-hmm. I just didn't think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the language that uh, they were singing in the choir that sings there at the end, yeah. Uh, is Sanskrit. Oh, okay. So, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, but anyway, some things that I thought that were kind of interesting, so, about the movie, and again, shows all the different thought and everything else that goes into making the movie. Were you guys ready for some trivia? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead and embarrass us. <laughs> yeah, I'm mad we do. Well, no, this is trivia really for everyone. See, if you, if you know it, great. Um you can let maybe you know write in you know, write in sci-fi rewind at gmail dot com and let us know you know how much of the trivia you knew. But this is a bunch of different trivia uh, regarding Matrix Revolutions, and then we'll get into some listener feedback. So, um, either one of you, what gate needs to be opened in order for Niobe and the crew to enter? Um, they're numbered. Oh, the num- oh. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with three. That Kevin, you're dead on. It is gate three. Hmm. So, and that's again a good uh, spiritual number if you want to throw in. <laughs> right, right, right. So, good, good guess, right? Yeah, uh, Holy Trinity. There we go. There, there we go. Right. Uh, what is Commander Locke's first name? Jason. Jason's correct. That oh, was too easy. Um, who is the creator of the land between the machine world and the Matrix? The. Uh the creator of it. Um, is it the Merovingian? It's not the Merovingian. Okay. The, the, the train man. It's a train man. Okay. The train man. Uh, so and the way it's worded is that train man, of course, controls this land. We didn't even talk about the train man. He's a fascinating character in and of himself. But, you know, these, he kind of controls this land between the two worlds. Um, mm-hmm. um, the actor who plays the train man has a major role in one of Kevin's favorite TV series. <laughs> Do you know the series, Miles? Um, Think of Kevin's podcast. There you go. <laughs> Kevin's laughing because he knows mm-hmm. this already. I'll give you a hint. It's not Serenity or Firefly. Yeah, it doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> um, fantasy, fantasy-based. Fantasy-based. Is this guy in 
Legend of the Seeker? Legend, of, Legend of the Seeker, who plays Goosey yes. Play. Kevin. He plays Zed the Wizard. Yeah, he's one of the one of my favorite characters in that series. You know, just great. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> can you name two of the other major franchises he was also a part of? Mad Max. Oh yeah, he was a part of Mad Max. I wasn't thinking of that one. Oh, um, uh, what else was he a part of? Um, yeah, I'm God, sure. now I'm drawing uh, a blank. Lord of the Rings: Return of the King. He is the mouth of Sauron in the extended edition. Oh, okay. And he's also in Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Who do you play in? He's Tian oh. Medan. He is the male um, uh, Pauin at, at uh, Utapau who greets Obi Wan when he walks in to Utapau or lands in Utapau the first time. Okay. Oh. So yeah, I just I remember my first impression seeing him in Mad Max. That was yeah. He's just such a phenomenal... His character, he has a way of... Really, the train man and Zed are not that far off. <laughs> well, he he plays odd or crazy real well. Oh, he does. And it's, uh, it's just... <laughs> this is great. Just great. <laughs> Seeing him as a train man, he's like, it's Zed! Because I'd forgotten he was in it. <laughs> when, I, when I watched Legend of the Seeker the first season, I kind of forgot that he was a part of that. But I thought I had to bring that in. So... Uh, next trivia question. What is the name of the ship that Trinity and Neo fly to the Machine City? The Logos. The Logos. And, uh, Kevin, can you tell me what the Logos means? No. Miles? It's, um, well, in, in uh, Koine Greek, um, it, it, can, it, it, it has the connotation of the, well, it's translated in, in the Bible, the word, or... Um, it's like the final word. Con- or yeah, concept yeah. idea of. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> All right. And what do the bouncers at the Merovingians Club call Seraph when they see him? Oh. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't either. Wingless. Wingless. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, what is written on the side of the train station where Neo wakes up? It's the name of an avenue. Oh, God, I can see it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> this one's hard. I would not have gotten this one. So, Isn't this another one of those references to Chicago or wherever they always had a lot of the... Uh, maybe. It's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's Mobile is the name of the avenue, which, oh, is, an okay. a, which is an anagram. If you rearrange the letters, it means limbo. Oh, interesting. Yes, yeah, there we go. There you go, so... Yep. That's why that's there. At the end of the movie, what does Sati make for Neo? We kind of talked about this. It was easy. easy. But yeah, the sun. The sunrise, yeah. Yep. Um, oh, and the last one we also talked about. When asked why he's still fighting, what does Neo reply? Because. Uh, it's my choice. Yeah, he chooses to. Chooses so, to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you guys did a little bit better in this trivia. Yeah, we didn't totally suck. Mm. No. I didn't totally <laughs> no. Wipe, wipe you over the ground with it. So. But uh, so let us know how well you did on this trivia. So you have to let us know. Well, let's move into some listener feedback. And I thought we'd start by uh, playing the feedback. We got an audio clip in from Matt Anderson from the Sci-Fi Christian podcast. And I thought I'd just play this. And I'm just going to play this, Kevin, for the sake of uh, a space holder here. Hey guys, this is Matt Anderson calling from 
a sci-fi Christian. Uh, just wanted to call in in time for your Matrix Revolutions episode. So I was just walking through, uh, doing a little rewatch myself, and uh, I just got to the scene where Trinity is driving. Matrix is in the path of the seat. They, they fly up above the clouds to avoid the sentinels, and they see the sky, and it's beautiful, and that is an awesome scene. And then right afterwards, they crash, and it ultimately to Trinity's death. So, after I saw this, I was thinking about Neil's ultimate uh, end, where he sacrifices himself, and I was wondering, in the end, was this really as big of a sacrifice as we thought all along? Because we saw and reloaded that Matrix, or that Neil had a chance to to choose between uh, either choosing to save Trinity or choosing to save all of humanity. The architect gave him this choice, go through this door, go through this door. And he ultimately chose Trinity. Uh, but here, he sacrifices for for everybody, both machines and humans. But would he have actually, would he have uh, sacrificed himself if not for the fact that Trinity was already out of the picture? Or did she have to die in order for him to choose to give up his own life? What do you guys think about that? I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right. So <laughs> this, is, this is actually a pretty deep thought. He, first of all, mentions the summer, sunrise, which is absolutely beautiful and gorgeous after seeing the nitty-gritty of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're in the darkness the whole time. You're also like, oh, look, there's the sun. Oh, goodbye. Down. But this whole idea, like, was the sacrifice that Neo makes at the end the, really the biggest sacrifice? What are your thoughts on that? And then he kind of references back to, of course, the whole Trinity and uh, Neo having to choose whether to save humanity or Trinity. What are your thoughts on this, Kevin? What do you think? Well, as far as his question on on if Trinity or the fact that had, when Trinity died, did that change? You know what he was willing to do. I. I I believe when he decided to go to the Machine City, he already knew he wasn't coming back. So I don't think that um, affected what he was doing. It may have given him more um, reason to do it because at that point he had lost Trinity. There was no chance of the two of them, you know, quote, walking off into the sunset. But I I believe he really didn't think that was going to happen anyway. So I, I don't think it had a major uh, impact on on his mission and his willingness to do it. I mean, obviously he was, uh, you know, very sad to lose her. But I, I I don't think that was as important as it might have been, you know, a movie or two earlier. Well, you know, and, and he kind of makes a statement, you know, even before he goes when he asked to take a ship there. He kind of says, you know, he kind of knows what he must do. It's kind of a decision that he's already made at that point, right? Yeah, I would yeah. agree with that. And, and you know, to say that this decision is bigger or less than the, the decision to save Trinity, if he would not have saved Trinity in the, in the second movie, then he would have had no one to really drive the ship when he was blinded. You know, so, I mean, how do you evaluate whether that decision is important or not, unless you look at it in retrospect, you know? Yeah, it didn't. I mean, I don't know if you would have gotten many volunteers to uh, flaunt, you know, take them to the machine. Uh, City, right? So, so timing is everything. Yeah. So probably saving Trinity in the second film was the better choice at that point. At that point, yeah. And he still saves humanity, Mm -hmm. and but just not the way the architect thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Other thoughts on that, Kevin? 
uh, well, I think it is part of what I brought up and we talked about a little earlier. That the point at the end of that second one when he chose to save Trinity rather than, you know, quote, resetting the Matrix, that was when he was at his point where uh, he didn't have the bigger picture, uh, really. He was just doing something for the ones he loved, in this case, Trinity. So, again, his his world was smaller. By the time we get to that, this third movie, uh, as much as he loves her, I think he realizes that uh, he has a much bigger thing to deal with than than just the love of one woman. Right, right. So, you know, it's it's kind of a, I don't want to say done deal, but it's that whole idea of you have a bigger commitment and you have a bigger impact to make and, and you have to, unfortunately, put aside personal situations in order to accomplish it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Matt, for... Uh calling in and leaving us that uh, that voicemail and for giving us your thoughts and giving us something to dialogue about here. Mm-hmm. So really appreciate that. And as always, you can call in at one 888 4343 and uh, you can go to Tuning to Sci-Fi. Call in at their number too or just send us an MP3 file and we'll play it on our podcast. Stargate next month, so don't forget that. Um, Andy Simpson said this on Twitter. He goes, listening to the Matrix Reloaded podcast by Sci-Fi Diner and tuning in Sci-Fi makes me remember trying to fight my brother in bullet time after the movie. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, come on. How many of you have never tried to do what Neo does, like when the bullet's flying at him and he's leaning back just to see how well you can balance? I've done it. <laughs> I'm always curious. I'd love to know how many movies tried to do that or did that either through just, you know, having fun with it in a comedy or an actual I mean I'm just curious too bad they couldn't have patented it and whoever came up with it and made a fortune on it oh yeah absolutely it's been mimicked many times <laughs> yeah we, yeah, see, we, we exactly. see it we see it um, this is from uh, Raduz who wrote in and this is I think about the Animatrix episode so I'll just read this and then we can kind of respond to it uh, hi guys I enjoyed listening to the Animatrix Rewind show quite a bit this time it took a different approach and watched the Animatrix episodes in my on my iPad alternating between watching an episode and then listen to what you guys talked about so he kind of you know listened and then he, he, he watched and then listened to us talk about it um, I guess it's as close to get as to a, getting a live Rewind show very cool my favorite episode was Beyond Probably because the idea reminded me so much of one of my favorite Japanese anime shows I watched a few years ago called Deno Coil. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, Deno Coil is about an emerging half-virtual world where the internet-connected augmented reality eyeglasses and visors are the thing the young, of the young generation. Children equipped with virtual tools and meta-tags research uh, a mounting evidence of children who have been whisked away into the mysterious other side of reality. Here they find themselves entangled in a conspiracy to cover up the dangerous true nature and history of the new technology. At the time I watched the anime show, I did not realize how much matrixy it was. Now I see the connection. It feels all warm and glowy. Cheers, Reduz. So, uh, thanks, Reduz, for writing in. Any thoughts on what he's saying? That's that's very cool. You actually think that much of our discussion to literally you know watch the segments and then listen to us. That's a that's a great way, especially where it was so many different shorts. That's a great way to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I feel like we're blowing hot air. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> probably are. But you know, uh, it does bring up an interesting thing. And you know, we may never do this, but you know, another approach we could take to this sometime is actually you know doing a mystery science theater type thing where we're coming in a movie or doing a you know like a commentary on a movie sometime as we watch it live. Well, yeah. 
Roll Radu kind of used our podcast as a as a commentary. Yeah, commentary sort of track, commentary so. track. So. That, was, that was cool. But yeah, uh, so it might be well down the road sometime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometime. <laughs> Thank you again for writing in and let it giving us your thoughts. And I never watched uh, this show he's talking about. Um, Deno Coil. Did you did you ever see it? Do you ever watch much anime, Kevin? No, I'm not much on the animation or anime side, so I'm totally in the dark there. Yeah, but uh, I've caught some, but I don't think this is one that I've caught. So, Miles, yeah, that, that's that's new to me. Yeah. I've never heard of it. Yep, Colin wrote in, and uh, Colin from England. Hi, Colin, and he wrote in. He said, "Before I start, I would like to say that I'm not high or even tipsy." Because I think we made that comment based on him watching the Animatrix. Mm-hmm. Um, we made I, pro- I probably made the comment knowing me, but <laughs> so for the final movie, um, as well, this film is flawed. It is the weakest entry in the trilogy, but it's still damn entertaining and provides a decent sense of closure. I know a lot of people dislike it, but I think it's okay. The final showdown between Neo and Smith returns to the obvious, uh, obvious over the topness of Superman. Antics with both of them flying and fighting in the air. To a lot of people, this final fight scene is a WTF moment, but there's a lot of other things before you get there. This film is set almost entirely in the real world. Revolutions is totally different from the first two in this respect. We get to see a lot more of the devastation that is left over from the war. We also get to see the Machine City up close and personal, very up close as far as Trinity was concerned. (laughs) No pun intended. Uh, If I was to criticize anything, it would be that in Zion, everyone is well fed. Normally, when you struggle to stay alive, food is a rarity. But no one in Zion is hungry. Also, everyone is good-looking with great bodies. Uh, (laughs) True. Well apart from the council. Um, It would have made more sense to have a variety of humans. After all, we come from many shapes, sizes, and colors. But back into the review. While the second film was at least was fun action film. This movie does not even give us that. The story crumbles and tries too hard to be clever. They tried hard on the mythical religious savior bit, the ending when he allows Smith to assimilate him, Miles is now thinking Borg, and had me thinking, why? why? How does Smith joining with Neo stop him? And then you're left with, is Neo dead? Why did the machine plug into the, uh, all his ports and not just his head? Why did they carry him away? The best premise I came up with is that Smith is housed in Neo's head. Can you imagine thinking this? Imagine if Smith is nothing more than conjecture of Neo's reality. I, I can't go there. Um, <laughs> That's a whole other deep discussion for another it, time. It is, but to me it just doesn't make sense. But I thought, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but when we saw Neo getting plugged in, I thought there was a jack that was going behind his head and that finally did plug Oh, yeah. I thought he's thinking that he's also plugged into the other ports. But I didn't necessarily pick up the fact that he was plugged in. I thought only his head was plugged in and all these others were kind of functioning as a chair for him. Right. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Kevin, your thoughts on this? Well, he's got some good points, again, about the, the movie in general. I, I can't argue with a lot of that in terms of, you know, like we talked earlier, the symbolism and, and so forth. As far as... Uh, his question about uh, Smith, you know, in Neo's head—that's that is interesting. I mean, I, I know I probably should finish the email because he, okay. he does have one other line. He says, "By keeping him inside Neo's head, they keep him out of the mainframe." And then he goes, "There's a little bit more, but I just want to make sure I said that because it's not that Smith is just a conjecture of Neo, but at the end when Neo assimilates him, mm-hmm. that he's then trapped inside Neo." 
And see, I always kind of thought as, as Smith, you know, was constantly, you know, taking over everyone. Um, but again, it was because of the unique nature of Neo and his abilities that while Smith was just power hungry, he didn't realize that he couldn't handle, pardon the pun, the power of Neo. And that even though he thought he could take them over, he really couldn't because in essence it was truly the Oracle who was much more powerful. Um, you know, she wasn't really in the body in the kitchen when Smith took it over. She really was in Neo and, and therefore was more powerful at that point. But mm-hmm. interesting question, though. Wow, that gets deep fast. You know, mm-hmm. where's the Oracle right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, any other comments on uh, what he said earlier on about this movie and where it succeeds and fails before I read the rest of the email? No. All right. Uh, let me keep reading. He continues to say, anyways, the parts I liked were the dock battle, where the man uses a machine gun to fight machines. The sacrifice and bravery of the human inside uh, their machines reflects some of the uh, scenes in Animatrix without being pulled apart, uh, without the being pulled apart bit. Where they, remember when they're fighting the machines and the, the humans are like torn apart inside their own machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, here you don't really see that, but... Uh, <clears throat> Plus a sense of closure of sorts. At the end, they also never answer the question, what peace will entail? Will the human batteries be released? Or is this just a stalemate situation? If humanity is needed in a sense of, of its, if humanity needed the sense of purpose, will it be that now that comes from the matrix if it's not rebooting? So if there's no purpose for humanity, hmm. they don't have anything to fight for. Is humanity going to live? Lots of questions and uh, only some answers. But my single biggest regret is that this entire of this entire trilogy is no one killed the damn Frenchman. <laughs> he was so annoyingly <laughs> complacent, smug git. Anyways, thank you one and all for reliving these films. I really enjoyed it. What's next? Live long and podcast, Colin. Thanks, Colin, for writing in and giving us your long thought. He has another short email I'll read here in a second. Any thoughts about that? What he said? Oh, I kind of like the Frenchman. I mean, oh, I uh, did too. So um, he is—he is smug, though. He, Trinity, he, he did, yeah. He go. did serve his purpose, and I—I I would have got a good smile if Trinity had turned and you know used the gun on him. I wouldn't have cried. No, I wouldn't <laughs> have cried either. But I mean, uh, <laughs> right? But no, he—he was a—he was—he is a character I enjoyed seeing. When I saw the Frenchman, you always knew something good was around the bend. Mm-hmm. So certainly there, and uh, very, very, very cool. Um, he also says this. He also mentioned, he goes, Hi, guys. I forgot to add, but out of the three films and the Animatrix, my favorite parts are, um, favorite parts, and this, I guess he's looking at the entire thing in totality, is the gunfight in the lobby uh, of number one. The music really brings the scene alive. And then you get the liquid fire at the end. Awesome, as you say over there. Second, the fight scene in the courtyard in two, Neo fighting 50 Smiths and then going to bat with the pole. Love that scene. So what's yours? So live long and podcast copyright Colin, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so I, we didn't we haven't really talked about this. But what are your favorite moments from all three movies in the Animatrix? Oh, Miles, wow. you want to go first? Put you on the spot. Um, wow, um, I would agree, Colin. Uh, the sec- one of the one of them is the second fight scene in, in, in the second movie with uh, Neo and Smith, and when he grabs that pole and. Use that to swat all the other Smiths around. That, that, that's just a really great fight scene. Um, um, 
in in the third movie, I thought you know the Battle of Zion, just that was just just really intense, and the whole chase scene with uh, I'm trying, I think the ship was the Hammer. It's a ship that uh, Niobe flew to get back to Zion. That was just a great chase scene. Mm-hmm. So th- th- those are a couple of my favorites. Yeah, Kevin, how about you? Well, I loved the. In the first movie, fairly early on, the first fight Neo and uh, Morpheus have. Oh, yeah. We kind of see the concept of the Matrix actually playing out a bit, That just because it, of the eye-opening nature of it. Um, and, and one of my other favorite ones isn't so much the the action sequences, which are great. And Like, for example, I love the freeway scene in the second one. It's just so over the top. It's just, I'm sorry, it's just, it's almost Transformer-like. It just, you know, it doesn't have to have a reason. It just looks cool. Um but the scene that always still resonates with me is is with Neo and the Architect. Just at this point, by this point in the trilogy, um, the whole idea that now my brain literally just had to reboot to try to understand that, oh, this is all a bigger picture and this has all happened before and this whole idea is, is a reset just blew my mind at the time. I, I, I still remember how, how mind-opening that was. Oh, Can't yeah. forget that. Absolutely. And we could probably list tons of speeches here if we're going to recap everything. But, you know, I just, the lobby scene you mentioned, I've always loved that lobby scene as far as for action. Because you, you really begin to see what these people are capable of. Um, I love when they rescue Morpheus in that first movie. I think it's just a great scene and the whole helicopter thing and him, you know, and the whole glass rippling on the building. It's just phenomenally done. Um, and... I mean, I don't know. There, there, there is there is quite a bit that I uh, that I love in the other movies too, and so, but there's too many to choose from. Mm. So, but, but <clears throat> all right, and uh, that's it for the uh, listener feedback. So, but if you want, if you want to give us your thoughts on Matrix Revolution and what we said about it, and tell us we're full of hot air or <laughs> some things you agreed with or maybe add to our thoughts or your perspectives. We would love to hear from you. Sci-fi rewind at gmail.com or any of our emails for our respective podcasts. We'll also get that to you as well. Before we go, before we wrap up the show, is there anything else that you guys want to say about the matrix? I think the, the matrix, especially the first one, definitely was, Broke new ground. As yeah, far as absolutely. No, no question on that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Kevin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's a bucket load of fun yeah. uh, and some great, you know, sci-fi entertainment for us genre fans. But I would just again recommend anyone who's fascinated by the concepts those couple of books, taking the red pill and uh, uh, like a splinter in your mind. If you if you really want to get your your brain going, I highly recommend both those books for some essays on on the whole philosophical and religious side of some of these things. Yeah, see what you don't know is that Kevin actually wrote some of these books. He's <laughs> trying to sell them to I'm just kidding. Right. No. No, no. I no. can't I can't write a good grocery list, so no, no. that was <laughs> No, uh, but they are good if you want to get into the philosophy. I think I've really enjoyed this ride. You know, I feel like oh, I'm absolutely. Uh, moving on from some really good films that uh, I will probably revisit again in the future sometime. So mm-hmm. can't say enough about these films. Well, for our next rewind, please do not forget that we are rewatching Stargate, the very first one, the very first, the original, the movie Stargate. I should, maybe should clarify that since we have so many incarnations of that. So, so the one with um, 
Kurt, Kurt, Kurt Russell, Russell, James Spader, yeah. and many, many others. And going back to the original, see what started of all started it all. So watch it with us. Let us know your feedback and your thoughts. You can call us at one eight 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 five zero eight four three four three or email us at the emails that we mentioned before. And let us know what you think of this. What do you think of this? How do you like it? How does it stack up with the the series that it spawned out of it? Because uh, you can be sure that we'll be discussing some of that. Also, don't forget that we will have a poll up for you to vote on what our next rewatch will be after the Stargate rewatch. And, Miles, what were your two again? My two was Blade Runner and Enemy Mine. Yep. And, uh, Kevin, your two? Uh, the Terminator and Aliens. Yes. And mine was 12 Monkeys and Equilibrium. So we'll put a poll up, and you get to choose which one of those we'll be doing for September. And uh, probably after Dragon Con, right, Kevin? Oh, yeah, definitely on the middle of the month at the earliest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, I believe that's about it. we got to wrap this sucker up. We've been going it's an hour and 20 minutes, and that's without any editing and adding, adding any sound clips. So. <laughs> but thank you guys for joining us. Um, Kevin, where can they find out more about the podcast that you're part of, and where can they contact you? Yep, the primary website for our podcast is tuningittosci-fi-tv.com. Yep, and it has all the stats and details that you want to contact and harass Kevin. And yep. you can obviously find out ours, Miles, where? Um, well, you can go to our, our, our main website at sci-fi-donnerpodcast.com. We also uh, have a Facebook page. Uh, we have a very thriving discussion, so check us out on Facebook. Yeah. And uh, if that's not enough uh, online social media, we're also on Twitter. Yep, and you can easily find us on Twitter there. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys and gals for joining us and, and, and being part of our discussion. That's yeah, it. Thanks, everybody. Till next time, good night and good luck. We'll see ya.
Sci-Fi Rewind is a collaborative effort between the Tuning Into Sci-Fi TV podcast and the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. If you would like more excellent sci-fi content, please check out one of these shows. Please email us at sci-fi rewind at gmail.com.